So, questions. How are we doing? Hi, Mrs. Hurley. Hello. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I'm learning a lot in this series. Like, I just, I, I was sitting at home telling my wife that I'm just, it's mind-blowing for me. So, I hope that you guys are interested in it and it's going well, because I think this is, from my perspective, one of the more important series that I've done here here at St. John's uh, from my own learning. So, you, you asked me to remind you to talk about Lent? Yes, Laura wants to talk about Lent. Oh, good. You guys want to talk about Lent for a second? Sure. All right. Go ahead with your question. We're going to talk about Lent in general. I don't have trouble freezing it. It's. it's uh-huh. did, last week you mentioned the thing about. Supernatural help, and he said Mother Teresa wasn't just really, really good. It was a supernatural element working through her, and I wondered how much that pertains to giving things up at Lent, which are very hard to give up. And I'm hoping we get some. Yeah, Mark called, called me at, 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 when I was at uh, Costco and said, "I'm really scared," <laughs> and that's good. We should be scared because uh, it's. It, I think for too many of us, Lent. Customarily is well. I mean, it's a time to give up things that we give up things that are kind of easy to give up, or we give up things oftentimes that are the same thing we gave up last year, which is good to give up the same thing we gave up last year. But there's where's the growth? You know, we're always. In fact, my column that I wrote in the bulletin this week is Lent at least, because the church lays out for certain laws which are a minimal, a minimalist approach for uh, all of those. You know the hangnails on the body of Christ, all those at the edge of the body of Christ, because she doesn't want to give a rule to follow, which is going to make it impossible for some to follow it. Because there's some people that struggle at the edge of the body of Christ. But um, hopefully, as we're going along, we're getting closer and closer to the heart of Christ. And so, Lent should be a time where, on a moment by moment basis, we're we're just we have this we, the struggle happens within us, and if you take the fast seriously, that, that the moment you give up, that you, you say okay, that's it. Especially on Ash Wednesday, which is a day of fast and abstinence, where I cannot have that food, not right now. Not that the food's bad, but immediately you feel that tension, right? Your your, uh, your fleshly desires, in a sense, go after it, and your intellect says no, and that's the war that the church wants you to have. It doesn't want you to have that war in the long run, but that's the war that has to be set up and realize that that war exists in us. And we're always letting our will just guide us all the time, all the time, instead of letting our intellect rule. And the whole point of Lent is to get us to the day of the crucifixion where our passions revolt at the idea of death, but our intellect knows that we must die with Christ. And we choose death with Christ giving up our old self, dying with him, that we might rise with him, that our will may be totally ordered to the to our intellect, and our intellect might be totally ordered to the divine intellect and will. So, yeah. I just wanted to comment that that's why I think it's so helpful to read the, the writings of the saints, the lives of the saints, because they're the ones who penetrate through, yeah. you know, that kind of outer periphery, the shell that Sabatino is talking about. In terms of the you know the minimalist or you know what the church is you know, urging everyone to do, saints are the ones who have taken it to the nth degree, and yeah. it's so it helpful when you read what Saint John the Cross and Teresa Babbler are two of my favorites, and and to and to recognize and understand that the church actually accepts and embraces everything that they write, right. but it's not part of the you know. Anything you'd find in the magisterium, but it's, right. it's, it is the most helpful guidance, like going by the stars, the yeah. stars of the church. Yeah, yeah. Guided by the stars. Uh, the old, in the old, you know, say the old days. You know, you remember the old fast was much more strict, and again, it was we're working with the bo- edge of the body of Christ. Maybe the edge of the body of Christ was a lot stronger back then, and could deal with that. But now things are, you know, we're dealing with we're in a, a really hard time. And so, if we're if we're guiding our spiritual life by the minimal approach, you know, so you're right. We're in the, the, we've got to say, look, these saints that have gone before us. They're our guide. 
And the church is just saying, at least you got to do this. You know, at least you got to go to Mass on Sunday. Right? At least you got to keep an hour fast. And we'll joke about, oh, well, you know. But I, you wouldn't believe it. I talk to so many people and they say, well, no, it's just that, well, it's just an hour fast before Mass, right? Well, yeah, but how hard is that? I mean, are we really preparing ourselves? You know, if we're really striving towards holiness, if we're tr- really striving towards the heart of Christ, then then we're growing, and, the, and it says the bar is always raised because the bar is God himself. Okay, and he's constantly drawing us up closer and closer to him. So, and, and are we going to have enough strength? God will supply the strength. And when we fail, he'll be there to pick us up and guide us again. And always, and we should fail during Lent. If we don't fail for, during Lent, we didn't do it right. You know? One thing that's really transforming my whole vision of Lent, too, is the church's, well, I guess it's new, it's going to be the whole attitude and vision of overview of Lent, that it's a joyful time and mm-hmm. not such a horrible mm-hmm. so, so, mm-hmm. time, which is pretty much the way we looked at tons of things when I was growing up. Right. We were just laden with guilt and right. you know, the sad Catholic, right. you know, and you go into church and everybody's right. up. So now this joyfulness, and if you didn't, like you're saying, if you read the lives of the saints, there's hardly a saint that doesn't end up before their death that talks about the joy of suffering. Yeah. And if you can get yourself to that point of thinking of this as a joyful, what, what yeah. is more joyful than joining in the cross of Christ and the suffering yeah. of Christ? I mean, not that humanly it isn't difficult and, and you know, stretches you, certainly. But it is joyful. I mean, yeah. you're, you're participating more and more and more in that crucifixion, yeah. and which will bring you to your ultimate goal. Yeah, ultimately, it's, it's not just... Uh, actually, I should have complete my sentence, but I said that our preparation is for the crucifixion of Christ, but ultimately, we're dying with Christ so that we can rise with Him. If Jesus never rose from the dead, then, as St. Paul says, our preaching is in vain. Our whole faith is in vain. So our whole goal is not death. Our whole goal is the resurrection, but there's no way to rise from the dead without first dying. Okay, so, uh, any other thoughts? I think, I think for me, and it was uh, uh, some people on here, it was frightening at first, because I kept thinking, oh my God, I'm going to have to give up things. And as I, you know, just go on my, continue on my spiritual life, I realized that Lent for me, I love Lent now because it's such a great opportunity for that growth towards holiness. And this is a great opportunity if we look at it in that way, not as a part, not as failure, but as a great opportunity to, uh, you know, to to die with Christ, and that if we are, if we're really seeking holiness and sainthood, my God, what better time? Mm-hmm. It's like mm-hmm. if you can help me, and I'm always begging. My my superior says, "Beg like a beggar, just right. beg," and I'm always begging. Yeah. You know, so. And the you know traditionally the church puts out certain food restrictions, not because it's caught up with hatred of yeah. food or anything, but because that's where the the most foundational battle is. You've heard me say this before, some of you, but where we're just, we're always going to the food, and it's a good way to just say, wait, stop right there. Not now. Not for me. It's not good right now. On Pascha, on Easter, there's going to be plenty of food and wine and all that stuff till as late in the night as you want to stay up and eat. But for right now, it's not good for me. It doesn't, you know, so I, I train my will by that little step, and that's why the minimalist thing, put these little things out in front of you. Meat. Do we have to eat meat during Lent? Or is it only on Fridays? Well, if you can do it, it depends on your, you know, how you live your life, but I mean, it's possible to give up meat all very late. What about uh, Sundays that are feast days? Well, yeah, Sundays in the Roman Church is always is considered a day of resur- the day of the resurrection. There's no fasting ever, so absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Can you remind us of the fasting rules that your church goes by? It's just the old, same as the old, old, old Roman fast way before all of our times, which is no meat, no dairy, uh, no oil. No olive oil, no wine, and um, uh, no fish except for shellfish. They're not shellfish. But you know, the thing is, you kind of. Oh, for all of that? Yeah, yeah. Well, on, on uh, weekends, you can have olive oil and wine. So, But um, but the thing is, you, know, you kind of. You, there's your. That's what the monks do in the monastery. You say, what can I do in my life to, to make the foundational difference? Like for me, one of the things is the radio. There's nothing wrong with the radio, but I'm always listening to it. So today, because we started Lent on Sunday, um, 
I didn't listen to the radio on the way, and my, my arm about 10 times going out towards me. And so I, by stopping that, I was left in silence, and I ended up starting singing one of the hymns that was stuck in my head from Sunday. We were singing at a church. And uh, so you know, that's just you, that time for silence and, and getting rid of distractions and training ourselves and, you know, well, television is classic. We can just get rid of the television. Us, so. um, you know, and the political thing, seriously, tonight, whether whoever wins, whoever what primary, whoever wins the Super Bowl on Sunday, does it really matter? What matters is we rise from the dead on Easter. So, all right. We're good? Yeah? All right, we got to get through some stuff today. Um, we're going to finish up the creed. And like I said, this series for me has been fantastic. I have learned amazing amounts uh, from the catechism. And uh, so, let's just start real quick with 771. I think is what we finished with last time. Paragraph 771. Oh, that's not what we call it. What do we finish with? 76. 776 we finish with. So. Sorry, but I'm more catechism back there. As sacrament, the church is Christ's instrument. She is taken up by him also as the instrument for the salvation of all. The universal sacrament of salvation by which Christ is at once manifesting and actualizing the mystery of God's love for men. The church is the visible plan of God's love for humanity. Remember, and what's God's, what's, first of all, what's God's plan? Sharing in God's life, right? Is the church is the visible plan of God's love. And what's God's love? The sharing. So the church is the, the manifestation, in a sense, the incarnation of God's life on earth. Okay? Because God desires that the whole human race may become one people, become one people of God, form one body of Christ, and be built up into one temple of the Holy Spirit. We are just finished that section. Remember, we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Notice how it's laid out in the Creed. All the other sections of the Creed on the Father and the Son are historically oriented. Okay? I believe in God, the Father, Creator. Okay? I believe in the Son who was born of the Virgin Mary, and so on, and suffered and died, and so on. But that, the last section of the Creed, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, it's like, it's as though it's laying all of these things out which flow from the reality of our belief in the Holy Spirit. And there was a question on Saturday from one of the RCIA candidates, they had their retreat, and she said, why does the Catholic Church seem to focus on the body of Christ, on the Eucharist, and all that stuff, and, and sometimes almost forgets the Holy Spirit? And I sat there and thought about it, and it was lucky somebody else teaching, so I got to sit there and, oh, why is that? Because it's true, in some sense. And we're always focusing on that. But it's because it's where the, it's the humanity of Christ is the instrument by which we receive the Holy Spirit. So as we always come into contact with the body of Christ in the reception of the life of God, it's there, and it's a union with His humanity that we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So that all of these realities, the church, the forgiveness of sins, the communion of saints, all of them are in a sense assumed underneath the reality of, of the Holy Spirit, which is the life of God himself. Okay? And so the, the Holy Spirit, as incarnated in the world, the Catholic Church, um, as the restoration of mankind, the image and likeness of God, forgiveness of sins. Okay? As the result in humanity, life everlasting. You see what I'm saying? It's all underneath that reality of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, 788. Paragraph 788. When his visible presence was taken from them, Jesus did not leave his disciples orphans. He promised to remain with them until the end of time. He sent them His Spirit. As a result, communion with, with Jesus has become in a way more intense, 
by communicating his spirit, Christ mystically constitutes as his body those brothers of his who are called together from every nation. Okay, keep going. The comparison of the church with the body casts light on the intimate bond between Christ and his church. Not only is she gathered around him, she is united with him in, her, in his body. Three okay, there you go. Not only is she gathered around him, but she is united in him. Okay, so it's not just a it's not just a matter of being like Christ. It's not just a matter of associating ourselves with Christ, but it is a matter of being in Christ. Okay? How do we get into Christ? It's two ways. Baptism. Baptism. Good one. Romans chapter six. Open up this one. Romans chapter six. You gotta know Romans chapter six. This is Melanie's favorite verse. <clears throat> Acts Romans, sorry, Gospels, Acts Romans, before First Corinthians. It's the Gospels, then Acts of the Apostles, and then Romans. Chapter 6. Well, we gotta get back. The Bible's getting faster. We haven't done a good Bible study in a while. What's that? We're gonna start with verse one. Mon, go ahead and read. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Okay, there you go. And you keep reading and start talking about the resurrection. We who are baptized into Christ, we were not baptized like Christ, we are baptized mystically, sacramentally into Him. We were united with Him in baptism. We were covered over with, by the waters and buried with Him in baptism that we might come forth from those waters resurrected from the dead. The sacrament of baptism gives us a different way to die. So that those who have died with Christ in baptism, death no longer has dominion over them in the same way that it had dominion over those who were not baptized into Christ. Okay? We say, yes, we die still. We do. But through our baptism into Christ, we have hope of our soul being united to God. Without that, there is eternal separation from God. So as Christians, when we die, yes, our body dies, but if we die in union with Jesus Christ, our soul lives on in eternity with God. Okay? So that's the first, first way that we are found in Christ. The second way is how? What's that? Uh, the other sacrament's okay? All right, yeah. Okay, it is found in our living out of the Christian life for sure. Okay, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. In fact, it has to do very much with what St. Paul is talking about there in Romans 6 also. He goes after baptism as the reason why you can't sin, but notice how he began in Romans 6. He says, what are we to say then? That we are to sin? That grace may abound? By no means. We are to live united to Jesus Christ. Okay, it's Ephesians chapter 4. Um, what, what, what do I want there, Melanie? I have no idea. Because <laughs> I didn't know the answer to your question. I think it's chapter 4, verse, um, verse 9. Uh, well, verse 11. Verse 11. And his gifts were that some should be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipment of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the cunning of men, by their craftiness in deceitful wiles. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into, into Him 
who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by every joint with which it is supplied, when each part is working properly, makes bodily growth and upbuilds itself in love. So, we are found in Christ by our baptism. However, that union with Christ in our baptism calls for the moral life. That by living out a life with Christ, by living out our union with Jesus Christ, we are further united with Him in every act that we do. Okay? So that we grow up into mature manhood into Christ. Paragraph 795. What's that? Ephesians 4, 11. That was a sheet. Yeah, Ephesians 4, yeah, 11. Yeah. Uh, Catechism 795. You remember, before you read that, you remember, we've been following the same thing over and over again here in different ways, looking at it from the perspective of what the church is in relationship to God's love. And we had a quote earlier on from, I forget but, um, that, oh, St. Athanasius, that God became man, that man might become God. God. And it's that mystery, that sharing of the life of God that we've been struggling with, trying to understand it, how it's to be realized in our life, how this process of sharing the life of God, of divinization, takes place. And here it is in the Catechism made explicit again, 795. Go ahead, Molly. Christ and his church thus make together make up the whole Christ. The church is one with Christ. The saints are acutely aware of this unity. Let us rejoice then and give thanks that we have become not only Christians, but Christ himself. Do you understand and grasp, brethren, God's grace toward us? Marvel and rejoice. We have become Christ. For if he is the head, we are the members. He and we together are the whole man. The fullness of Christ, then, is the head and the members. But what does head and members mean? Christ and the church. Our Redeemer has shown himself to be one person with the whole church, with the holy church, whom he has taken to himself. Head and members form, as it were, one and the same mystical person. Okay. St. Paul, this is drawing heavily on St. Paul. And St. Paul has a real kind of... Uh, materialistic, if you will, look at this, a real, uh, I don't know what you want to call it. Down What's that? No, not down to earth. Okay. Yeah, down, I mean, it's down to tangible reality, these looking at the body of Christ, and what does it look like? Okay, what does it look like? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians follows Romans. So you got the Gospels, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. We've read this, this text a hundred times in church and probably gotten pretty bored with it. But hopefully it'll make a little more sense now. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4. Verse 4. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are a variety of services, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of working, but it is the same God who inspires them all in everyone. Verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the workings of miracles, and so on and so on and so on. Verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the one Spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, that do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. You've heard this before. Right? In church. Okay, go all the way to the bottom, verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and so on. Okay? Some receive higher gifts, some receive lower gifts. When St. Paul is meditating upon the mystery of God's gift of his life to us, he realizes 
that some are given a particular share in God's life, others are given another share in God's life. So much that he's literally looking at a body and saying, you're a finger, Mark. You're a hand, Melanie. Chris, you're a foot, or an eye, or an ear. So that all of us share in the body of Christ in a myriad of ways showing forth the glory of God. And if you despise your hand, you're despising yourself. If you're a foot and you despise your hand, you're despising yourself because you're one body. Okay? The catechism turns at this point, and we're not going to cover it in detail, to the hierarchy in the church. Because oftentimes we look at the hierarchy as this institutional thing that the, the bishop rules over the church and because, you know, totally outside of the organic nature of what the church is. But we need to start to change our thinking from seeing a simply an institutional church like the uh, corporation down at Walmart and start to see the gifts that God has given in relationship to who God is. One is called the rock because Christ himself is the foundation stone. One forgives sins because Christ forgives sins. One teaches because Christ teaches. The body of Christ is made up of all of us being given a share in who Christ is, and each in a particular way. Okay, One reads in the church. One serves in the church. One knits the thing for the tabernacle in the church. Everybody given a participation in the life of God. Okay. Can I ask a yeah, question? So, but you wouldn't say that Christ in and of himself is not complete as Christ. No, in fact, right there. I am right there. Okay. There it is. Paragraph eight eleven. We mean that Christ is divided, you're saying, or something like that? Yeah, like without us, he's not. Yeah, he's not. It's not what Melanie was asking. So Melanie, ask your question. Christ is still Christ without the church. Like, just, I mean, yes, he's the head and we're the members of the body of Christ, but that's something very different from saying Christ isn't, he doesn't. You're saying there's, if there's zero believers, Christ doesn't have a body. And I'm going to say that. No. But he's not dependent that Christ on us. is dependent upon us, and I'm being recorded, Melanie. <laughs> and here's why. Because when we talk about Jesus Christ, we are talking about the one who has been anointed with the gift of the Holy Spirit in his humanity for the restoration of us. But you're saying that God wouldn't be God if... Nah, no, no, no. Here's what I'm saying. That Christ came for the salvation of man. And what he does is not complete until he has gathered all of us in him. And that's exactly what St. Paul talks about. We'll look at it a little later in Colossians. When St. Paul says, I make up, you know, in the text, I make up in my own body, my suffering, right? How's it go? For the lacking in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. What could be lacking the sacrifice of Jesus Christ but us? So, I mean, let's go, okay, we'll take it, let's take it, you know, take, you understand where I'm coming from here. That you're right, in some sense. But that's why but, we have the temporal dimension. Yeah. We're living in time, and there's also eternity. And the, the, the process of gathering yeah. the parts of the body it is occurring time. in history. Yeah. But Christ also lives not only in history, but in eternity. Yeah. So you can look at, maybe you can look at it from two different perspectives. Christ, at the, at the beginning of the church, in some sense, was in seed form. The body of Christ was in seed form. That really was Christ. But in some sense, you could also say, as we just read from St. Paul, we are growing up into him. So he is the fullness already, yes. But in some sense, he awaits the fullness of the gift of himself to man. But it's like you're saying that God the Son isn't complete as God the Son. No, I'm saying, I'm saying that Jesus Christ, in some sense... Who is God I know, hold on, I know, I know, hold on. Hold on. That Christ, the Anointed One, in His humanity, awaits the full gift of Himself to all of mankind as we are joined to Him. 
God the Word from all eternity. Okay. You can't I, separate. Well, I, there's a history. You can. No, I'm not separating. I'm simply saying there's a historical dimension to Christ, yeah. and that historical dimension is a waiting fulfillment, a waiting fulfillment in in us. Okay. Now, take a with a grain of salt. What I'm saying. I mean, there's a mystery there that by by pushing ourselves on it. Okay. I mean, I could just say yes. You're right. God's just fine. We all know that. But in reality, there's this aspect of the gift of Himself. Which is almost, he puts himself at, I don't say our disposal is the wrong word, but at our, you know, service. At our service, like he awaits us. That's the gift of the love of God. And there would have been no need for the cross if we had all been perfect, remained perfect. Yeah. The perfection of the first Right, thing. right. That was his. So it says, Christ on earth is, be, is becoming in the church. The reality of the incarnation in us is becoming. And that's what St. Paul says. We are growing up into him. But yes, you're right. Yes, okay. All right. All right. Uh, 8.11. Paragraph 8.11. Mon, are you there? And, uh, no, in the catechism. In the catechism. 8.11. This is the soul church of Thank you, Sue which is the creed we profess to be one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. These four characteristics, inseparably linked with each other, indicate essential features of the Church and her mission. The Church does not possess them of herself. It is Christ who, through the Holy Spirit, makes this Church one holy, Catholic, and apostolic, and it is he who calls her to realize each of these qualities. Okay, so there's these characteristics that we say of the Church. The Church is holy. But what do you say to me? I mean, unless you're here, it has some members who are. Yeah, I mean, so all right, the church is one. But what? It looks divided. It pretty divided to me. Okay, these aspects that we say about the church, and the church continues to say that about herself, and yet we look and we say, and sometimes we look in vain and we say, well, what is it? What are they saying? What is the church saying? First of all. It's saying that we can say about the church what we can say about Christ. Okay? The church is one. It is not divided. Christ cannot be divided. Which means, when there is division, apparent division within the church, what is true? Is it truly division within the church? It's a division from the church. Okay? There cannot be division in Christ. And so when people separate themselves from the body of Christ, when they separate themselves from the truth, it's not as though the church is being divided, but that people are leaving the oneness of Christ. And thus we call it schism. Okay, breaking away from the reality of of Christ and his body on earth. But again, yeah. that's all occurring in time. Yes. There's a difference between what the body of Christ looks like in time. Yeah. In, in eternity, in its in its fullness. In its fullness. We don't I'm saying, know yeah. that all those schisms and all the people that are departing are going to be eternally departing. Right, that's, that's true. If, clearly, in eternity, the church will be totally unified, and there won't be even any apparent division. But what I'm saying is that when we look at the church, we make the mistake when we say, well, half the church is over there and half the church is over there. And this, we're going to get to some hard, hard teachings that are difficult to grasp. But the fact is that from the church's perspective, that because Christ is one, those that divide, in a sense, apparently within the body of Christ, are actually dividing from the body of Christ, separating themselves from the truth. Okay, with all of the ramifications of that, because it is the life of God Himself which flows through the church. So when I separate myself from the church, I separate myself from the body of Christ. Okay. Because the perfection of the church of Christ in the church is not relative to time or space or anything. True. It's true. Because, because of our relationship to Christ. Always. Right. Okay. Um, the church is holy. Say, wait a minute. Paragraph 827. Paragraph 827. 
this kind of gets at that other point that's helpful from understanding. So, Marine, you want to help read that there, 827? Christ, holy, innocent, and undefiled, knew nothing of sin, but came only to expiate the sins of the people. The church, however, clasping sinners to her bosom, at once holy and always in need of purification, follows constantly the path of penance and renewal. All members of the church, including her ministers, must acknowledge that they are sinners. In everyone, the weeds of sin will still be mixed with the good wheat of the gospel until the end of time. Which is your point, right? It's instance of keep, keep going. Hence, the church gathers sinners already caught up in Christ's salvation, but still on the way to holiness. Okay, now let's read that, the, the quotations. That's really what I wanted you to read. The church is therefore holy, though having sinners in her midst, because she herself has no other life but the life of grace. If they live her life, her members are sanctified. If they move away from her life, that's your point. Yeah, exactly. Fall into sins and disorders that prevent the radiation of her sanctity. This is why she suffers and does penance for those offenses of which she has the power to free her children through the blood of Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so there's two aspects, two realities there. Okay, we've got to kind of juggle to figure it out. It's, it is a, the mystery of the reality of Christ on earth and our incorporation in there. And, it's, and how are we to understand? That's why I'm talking talk about the, the hangnail on the body of Christ. Okay, most of us are hangnails to the body of Christ, okay, existing on the edge, trying, trying as best we can to get in, but constantly falling short. And Mark, this also helps your question about um, what we're going to talk about a little bit further along here, about the communion of the saints. Because ultimately, we all fall short, but also ultimately, there, is, there are those that have gone before us. And because of the reality of the body of Christ working together, as St. Paul said in Ephesians, I don't know if you were paying attention to that, but every part hooked together with the joint and the sinews and being fed by the veins, all of us work together for the building up of the body of Christ. And so when you're fasting, you're not alone. I'm fasting with you. Okay? And as, as, as much as I apply myself to that... I am going to be assisting you, and as much as I am not, I am going to be a detriment to you because it's an organic reality. We work together. And you see that on a very practical level that, look, if, if your brother, your friend, is professing to be a Catholic and is falling into all sorts of sins and is tempting you, they are a detriment to your work within the body of Christ. Okay, so we work together on that and the whole project of Lent in our journey. Okay, yeah. I think it was uh, Benedict, uh, Benedict Rochelle who said, we're much more connected than our fingers connected to our hand, the body part. Right, even more so. Yeah, because this is just a, a material relationship, but always the material world reflects the spiritual because it's made in the image and likeness of God. But yeah, it falls short. So the analogy ultimately is way beyond our imagination of the beauty of it. Okay. Um, paragraph 830. The church is Catholic. One holy Catholic and apostolic. Uh, 830. The word Catholic means universal in the sense of according to the totality or in keeping with the whole. The church is Catholic in a double sense. We're just going to deal here with the first sense because it's the primary. First, the church is Catholic because Christ is present in her. Where there is Christ Jesus, there is the Catholic church. In her, in her subsists the fullness of Christ's body, united with its head. This implies that she receives from him the fullness of the means of salvation. Okay. Again, when we start talking about, we're getting to some hard teachings here because we're in 2008, we're damaged by, in some sense, all the attacks upon the identity of what the Catholic Church is. And all the attacks from within the church of serious sinners being exposed, you know, especially in all the priestly uh, things going on. Okay, we're damaged in our vision of what the body of Christ is and what the church believes about herself. And there it is, the Catholic Church, the fullness of the means of salvation. Who do we say that about? There's only one person is the fullness of the means of salvation, and it's Jesus Christ. But here it is being applied to the church because we believe in the love of God. 
that he has shared his life in such a way that what we can say about Christ, we can say about the body of Christ. What we can say about the head, we can say about the body. Okay? Questions on that? No. All right. Paragraph 846. One of my favorites. Just kidding. Paragraph 846. St. Cyprian of Carthage. Outside the church, there is no salvation. Outside the church, there is no salvation. Hmm. Tough teaching. How are we to understand this affirmation often repeated by the church fathers? Reformulated positively, it means that all salvation comes from Christ the head through the church, which is his body. Basing itself on scripture and tradition, the council teaches that the church, a pilgrim now on earth, is necessary for salvation. The one Christ is the mediator and the way of salvation. He is present to us in his body, which is the church. He himself explicitly, explicitly asserts the necessity of faith and baptism, and thereby affirmed at the same time the necessity of the church, which men enter through baptism as through a door. Hence, they could not be saved who, knowing that the Catholic Church was founded as necessary by God through Christ, would refuse either to enter it or to remain in it. What do you guys think of that? That's heavy duty. I mean, talk about this. Like, conceited statement, huh? How about this? There's no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus Christ. What's that? Yeah, well, we'll get to that in a second. Well, I left that paragraph out for a second. Do we have any problem with that? There's no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. No, no, no. Well, why is there no salvation apart from Jesus Christ? Pardon? Why is there no salvation apart from Jesus Christ? Because Christ is the only one who sees and knows God, and we see... Yeah. We who do, will see God will see Him through Christ. Yeah, and maybe even on a lower, more foundational level, salvation is simply not dying, being able to live with God as God planned for us. That's being saved from the fall of what happened. Christ saved us because He raises us from the dead. He's the only one who has ever raised anybody from the dead. He is the resurrection. It's only in Him that we can get out of the tomb. Okay? Sorry to say it, but Muhammad died. He died, and he never came out of the tomb. Jesus died, and he came out of the tomb. He, that is why we believe in him. Okay? That's the center belief of the faith. There is no salvation outside of the church, because we get rid of the word church because it, just, it gets in our way in our modern conception of institution this guy hanging out of the Vatican window and put in its place the organic reality of the body of Christ a gathering of men into that communion with God there is no salvation outside of that because there's no salvation outside of Christ there can't be it's only in Christ that we rise from the dead and if we have no part in him we have no part in the resurrection does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, but so something I was asking a couple weeks ago, which is like if a person is a Protestant who's separated from the organization of the church, mm -hmm. aren't they still part of the body of Christ? Right, and this and that gets to a point, uh, a good point. And let's read, let's just keep reading on here. For eight, uh, 847. This affirmation is not aimed at those who, through no fault of their own, do not know Christ in His church. Those who, through no fault of their own, do not know the gospel of Christ or His church, but who nevertheless see God with a sincere heart and moved by grace, trying their actions to do His will as they know it through the dictates of their conscience, those too may achieve eternal salvation. Although in ways known to Himself, God can lead those who, through no fault of their own, are ignorant of the gospel to that faith with without which it is impossible to please him. The church still has the obligation, also the sacred right to evangelize all men. So there's this double aspect. However, the truth is the same. The church can on one hand say there is no salvation outside of the church, and at the same time say that those that appear to be outside the body of Christ can possibly be saved. But, but that's talking about, okay. really talking about 
really people of other religions. Hindus. Well, they get into that actually. We're not going to have time to get into that. It goes through all the different aspects. Those, you know, Protestants and Muslims, and okay, it gets into that. What the church is saying is that first of all, no salvation outside of Christ, and therefore no salvation outside of His body. Is it possible then? Is it possible for one to be attached to the body of Christ in some sense? without visibly being attached, without our material, earthly eyes seeing the possibility of it. From our perspective, from a Catholic perspective, we throw up our hands and say, for, by the revelation of God, we don't understand how it's possible to be saved without baptism in that baptismal font and eating that Eucharist. However, is God bound to that visible manifestation? And the church says, no. Okay? But let me read you a very hard quote. And we've got to deal with this because this is Pope Eugene IV, an infallible statement of a pontiff. The most holy Roman church firmly believes, professes, and preaches, that means you've got to hold it, it's an infallible statement, that none of those existing outside the Catholic church, not only pagans, check this out, but also Jews and heretics and schismatics can have a share in life eternal, but they will go into the eternal fire which is prepared for the devil and his angels. When is it? When do you say it? Is that where the church is? 1441. Is that where the church always thought that everybody else was going to hell is Catholic? Uh, don't walk out on it, guys. Don't worry. Because you see that this is an important point. We, as Catholics, cannot believe, we cannot hold that something which was infallibly stated can change. Otherwise we become Jehovah's Witnesses who believe there can be new light which contradicts old light. Okay? That cannot be wrong. And nor can the catechism when it's stating an explanation of, of, of salvation outside the church be wrong. Okay? So how are we to understand that? Is it possible for a Jew to be saved? I know I'm being very um, politically incorrect right now. Because I'm pushing us because we have to be prepared to understand this and explain it. But it's not very just. Is it possible? Mon, there it is. That none of those existing outside the church, pagans, Jews, heretics, schismatics. We have no idea. I think the mercy of God is so great. I mean, yeah. And I would also ask why water is a baptismal element. How many of us that live on this earth do not wash our children in water to make them clean? Mm -hmm. Is that not a material representation of our desire to bring our children right. to fullness and cleanliness? I mean, who knows how God is working? Yeah, and that is where the church says, look, there's baptism by normal means, by water, and also baptism by desire, desire and baptism by blood. blood. Okay? That there is a way to be baptized into Christ as the thief on the good cross was, uh, the, the good thief on the cross was, okay, united to Christ, entering into paradise without water. Okay? Baptism by desire. And that's exactly what they're talking about. One who seeks the truth at the level that they're given, okay, we believe in the mercy of God will be given a baptism by desire. We place them at the mercy of God. Here's my answer to Pope Eugene. Because Pope Eugene knows St. Paul better than I do. Much better than I do. Okay, he knows the teachings of the church much better than I do. A Jew cannot be saved as a Jew. A pagan cannot be saved as a pagan. An African cannot be saved as an African, just as much as an Englishman cannot be saved as an Englishman. A man can only be saved in Jesus Christ. Being Jewish will do nothing to save you. The fundamental difference between that and being Catholic is that we believe that the Catholic Church is the body of Christ. Christ himself dwelling on earth. And in that body, salvation is given. No longer to Greek, as St. Paul says. No longer to Jew. But one body in Christ. It will do nothing for you to be an Englishman or a Jew or anything. But Jesus Christ himself. Because only Jesus Christ raises from the dead. 
I think you're still left with it doesn't sound just. Um, I, th I think you have to recognise that um, there's uh, what you say, there's favouritism, that God favours certain people. Oh, predestination? No. Some people are given graces and opportunities that other people are not. Well, I'll tell you what, we need a whole series on that question. Because it is true that some are given special graces, right? Blessed Virgin Mary, given a special grace. And that's also where people who are given the special graces are motivated and inspired to pray for those who aren't given those. Play a role in the salvation. Expected more, but also we do believe that salvation is offered to all men. Yeah. Right. That didn't create them for eternal love. Right. It created them for eternal damnation. Right. So he exactly. must at the moment of death give them the, the opportunity. Isn't the reverse what St. Paul says like because the powder is well, because some pots are met, meant for the attraction? For destruction. Yeah. 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 And, he and who who are we to second guess? He's the potter. Mm -hmm. uh, do you have any idea where that is? I can't remember. So if you're gleaning what he's saying, um, you know, in the 1400s, um, then he's saying that being a Jew is not going to save you. That's right. You can also say that being a Catholic is not going to save you. No, here's the fundamental difference, because we, because we perceive the Catholic Church as the institution with the Vatican building. And Pope Eugene's understanding is not that at all. I guarantee you, Pope Eugene's understanding is St. Paul's understanding, which says that the Catholic Church, the Church, is the body of Christ, the organic living thing. And only in Christ is the life of God found, and only the life of God is eternal. So we get rid of this concept of the Church as this piece of stone built up like Walmart, Get rid of that and replace it with the concept of the body of Christ flowing with the life of God. Okay, and as Catholics, I know, I, I hear my own ears, and it sounds crazy because we hear Catholic Church and we think one among many. There's the Catholic Church and there's the Mormons, and then there's, there's you know, all of these. Look, we're only going to be saved in Jesus Christ, and it's because of our identity with Christ in the church, his gift of himself within the church that we can be saved, okay? That's why the sacraments are there. That's why we believe what we believe about the sacraments. Because there is the life of God flowing fully. And in as much as we separate ourselves from that, we separate ourselves from the gift of life. The, the apostles gathered in the upper room receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. That was the Catholic Church. That was the body of Christ on earth. Earth called Catholic because within it was the fullness of the means of salvation. The whole means of salvation there, present in Christ. And apart from that, there is no salvation. Because apart from that, nobody rises from the dead. I don't care, I don't care how good of a it doesn't mean there cannot be good Jews. But as a good Jew, I'm not going to be saved. Just as much as a good Italian, I'm not going to be saved. Just as much as a good Mormon, I'm not going to be saved. As, a, as being a participant in the life of Jesus Christ who rises from the dead, I have a hope of salvation. But at the last minute. At the last minute. They can get the grace It's possible, yeah. I know I just opened up the biggest can of worms. <laughs> it's a heavy, hard teaching. Read the catechism in this section, because look, the Pope Benedict was the head guy on this program here. He knew what he was saying, and he knew he couldn't avoid this topic, because he knew that this was the belief and teaching of the church forever, since the beginning. Okay, And so they take it on, head on, and they say, how is this to be understood? How can we understand Pope Eugene? Okay. How is it possible? And understand the good thief. Pope Benedict knows that those two things existed. He knows Pope Eugene. He knows the good thief. Okay? And so he takes the two things and meditates upon that reality of the gift of the love of God. Okay? It's possible for a God to love a Jew. Okay? That's not what I'm saying. It's that, that the love of God flowing into the heart 
of, of the good thief, or whoever it is, is the love of God flowing through the body of Christ. Apart from Him, there is no salvation. We are baptized into Him. Okay? I know it's hard. Yeah. Could you repeat the quote? Of Pope Eugene? You can uh, take a copy of the quote. Okay, let's, go, let's keep going because I got like, look at this, I got three pages of quotes just in case I got in trouble here. <laughs> okay. Uh, it is apostolic, 658. Oh my gosh. 658. 658. 858. Real quick. Jesus is the Father's emissary. From the beginning of his ministry, he called to him those whom he, de- he desired, and he appointed twelve, whom also he named apostles, to be with him and to be sent out to preach. From then on, they would also be his emissaries. In them, Christ continues his own mission. As the Father sent me, even so I send you. Participation in the body of Christ. The church is apostolic because Christ is apostolic. Okay? These identifications of what the church is based upon who Christ is. Okay? The next thing we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. What else? The communion, the communion of saints. Explain to me real quick the communion of saints. The saints in heaven are praying for us on earth. And? And the okay. souls of people who made it. Everyone who's gone before us who's And the made. souls of perfect <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Are there? And who else? And the militant. And the militant? Look, the community seems to simply the body of Christ. Everybody. It's an organic reality. And the root gives to the branch. Okay, without the root, the branch is in a lot of trouble. We are a corporate reality in Christ, all sharing the gift of the life of God. Okay? Um, are we saints already? <laughs> you better be saints already, Mark. Because I'll tell you what, we stand before God and we're not going to end in heaven without being a saint. Okay? So I know St. Paul calls seems to call the other Christians saints. What's that? Yes, he does. He does. That's the only place you really see it that word use is referring to living people. No, because it's in the book of Revelation. So, okay. What's next? I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. Can you saints? Explain the forgiveness of sins to me real quick. God forgives our sins. How? No, look. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. Explain that. That by being joined to the body, we are given that life which means cleansing the sins. Yeah, not just cleansing, but what? The filling up. Remember, sin is what? Yeah, privation. And therefore, the Holy Spirit gives the life which fills us up, which makes us holy, which makes us saints. Okay? The forgiveness of sins is the reality of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Okay? What's next? Resurrection of the body. The resurrection of the body. Uh, eight, uh, 989. 989. 989. Who's God? We believe and hence we hope that just as Christ is fully risen from the dead and lives forever, so after death, the righteous will live forever with the risen Christ, and he will raise them up on the last day. Our resurrection life is all will be the work of the most holy trinity. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit who dwells in you. The term flesh refers to man. Okay, so we'll stop there for a second. Notice, we believe in the bodily resurrection. My body, the flesh, will be a dweller in heaven. I will stand in heaven. Okay? What? Never mind. What? Well, go ahead. Well, I'm just wondering what How do you stand on the cloud? No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> what? Is it your old age body? Is it the body you die with? It's perfected body. The, 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 I say the customary traditional teaching of the church is that we will be raised up in our the height of our life. That, that Adam was created in the height of his life. We will be raised up in the height of our life. Okay? 33 years old with Jesus Christ. Okay? Dwelling in the, the fullness. And also that our bodies be totally transformed into him. Which means what? 
that we have all of the attributes of the body of Christ that Christ has in the resurrection. Okay? That our bodies will be divinized. Yeah. That I can only pick this up, but I can reach through it. Hmm. Good stuff. <laughs> All right. Uh, look, go back real quick. Keep your hand and go back to paragraph 609 real quick. 609. 609. If we're going to talk about death and resurrection, I know we're over time, guys. Uh, if you've got to leave, just leave. I, I mean, maybe like 10 minutes. We can do the whole creed this way. The whole creed. And it's Mardi Gras. Go have a glass of wine and some beer. We'll be fine. 609. By embracing in his human heart the Father's love for men. G no, notice this. What is the Father's love for men? In his human heart. No, what is the Father's love for men? Jesus. The gift of divine life. By embracing in his human heart the Father's gift of his life to men, Jesus loved them to the end. For greater love has no man than this, that he that man laid down his life for his friends. In suffering and death, his humanity became the free and perfect instrument of his divine love, which desires the salvation of men. Notice, what happens when Christ dies? His humanity is in some sense, I, I, I don't like this word, so I'm being recorded, so I'm saying I don't like the word, but is perfected in a particular way. A particular fulfillment takes place, which is the absolute and total gift of self to another, which is God himself, giving himself to another. So Christ dies, not because the Father glories in the death of his Son, because he's a bloodthirsty Father, but because... In his death, his humanity becomes a gift of himself to humanity. Man is made in the image and likeness of God. And in Christ's death, his humanity is fully transformed into that love of self, total love of self, for us. <coughs> and in that act, his humanity becomes the meeting point of that gift of love out to all of the world. Okay? That's kind of hardcore stuff, but, uh, okay, 616, 616. Let's talk about the death of Christ. It is love to the end that confers on Christ's sacrifice its value as redemption and reparation, as atonement and satisfaction. Notice, forget all that atonement, satisfaction, all that stuff for a second. It is love to the end which confers the value in Christ's sacrifice. It is because he loved us that it is valuable to God. Not because he, because he was destroyed and crucified. That was a sin against God and man. But because in that act, he totally gave himself in his humanity, his will and his intellect were totally divine, united to the divine element. He knew and loved us all when he offered his life. His intellect and his will totally transformed. We talked about that before. To know and to love God. Because God knows and loves himself from all eternity. His humanity is totally transformed. Okay? Um, real quick, back to 989. 989. We firmly believe and hence hope that just as Christ is truly risen from the dead and lives forever, we read this, right? Okay, go to the bottom of the page, 991, to that quotation. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That is the central issue of the gospel. I said that before. The Christian gospel is simply the resurrection. That's it. All the other stuff that we've learned in Catholic school and catechism, that's it. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. That's the good news. Okay? Um, was that 991? Yes. Okay, I'm just going to go through a few things here. 995. To be a witness to Christ is to be a witness to his resurrection. 
to have eaten and drunk with him after he rose from the dead. Encounters with the risen Christ characterize the Christian hope of the resurrection. We will rise like Christ with him and through him. Okay? Notice that when Christ ascends to heaven, what does he say? Go out. And make all the steps. He says, be my witnesses. Witnesses to what? Witnesses to his resurrection. And notice what the catechism says. To be witnesses to Christ, to be witnesses to his resurrection, to have eaten and drunk with him after he rose from the dead. Who was eaten and drunk with him after he rose from the dead? Not just the disciples, not just the apostles in the Bible. Did you? We have witnessed the resurrection in the Eucharistic mysteries. We have become his witnesses to the world. It's not just for the apostles. Okay? Uh, one, uh, paragraph 1002. Christ will raise us up on the last day, but it is also true that in a certain way we have already risen with Christ. For by virtue of the Holy Spirit, Christian life is already now on earth a participation in death and resurrection of Christ. And then, of course, Romans. Is it Romans 6? No, read that for me. Read that for me, Melanie. And you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Okay. I got a lot of stuff on life everlasting and hell and death, and we don't need to deal with that right now. So, um, I will conclude with, you know, if you're writing it down, you're writing it down, don't worry about Paragraph 1064. The creed ends, the section on the creed, you don't have to look it up right now, but the, the section on the creed ends with Amen in the Catechism, and we read this. May the creed be for you as a mirror. Look at yourself in it. May the creed be for you as a mirror. Look at yourself in it. When we began this class on the, on the creed, I mentioned that to you, the first class. The creed is not just simply an exterior uh, number of propositions that we assent to. The creed is the revelation of the divine life, the revelation of the Trinity, and the revelation of the sharing of that life with man. We are made in the image and likeness of God. We are made in the image and likeness of what we profess in the creed. The creed is to be a mirror for us, much more than a number of statements, propositions that we say. But the creed places before us the reality of the mystery of God's love in our lives. Okay? You finished with that? Trust me, I love, don't get me wrong on the whole Jews and things like that. You have to love everybody. I'm just trying to be, I have to teach the faith here. And there it is. Hard stuff. Hard stuff. Okay? Let's finish in prayer. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. And as was the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. St. John the Beloved, pray for us. Son of the Father, 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 Son of the